When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We got to put a best of on Drew. We're going to lose every station we have. This thing sucks. Who is your daddy and what does he do? End of day. The freedom of speech is being taken away. End of day. The judgment day. The end of the world. If you don't and welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I'm a mere figment of your imagination. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show, a place where you don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days, and you'll find the 24-7 network, End of Days. Catch the podcast version of the program. Go to michaeldeacon.com. Now, tonight will be a very special program. Paul Hellier is my guest tonight. He is one of Canada's best-known and most controversial politicians. He is an engineer, writer, and a political commentator who has had a long and varied career. He is the longest-serving current member of the Privy Council of Canada. My goodness. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Welcome back to the program, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you kindly to all the souls listening in. Like clockwork, strange packages have been sent out to various political figures. The political spectrum now slowly is becoming reminiscent of the UK. Politics is now almost the new religion. Do you agree with that? Let me know tonight. Stay safe wherever you are out there on this island earth. Now, without further ado, let's bring in Paul. I believe he is patiently waiting. Paul, are you there? I am here, yes. Amazing. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you for a young fellow. My goodness, and of course, welcome back to the program, Paul, and thank you so much for sharing your time with myself and all the listeners out there. I really do appreciate that. Oh, it's my pleasure. Amazing. Now, as a preamble, I wanted to just go through your background briefly. I also wanted to discuss society and politics and, of course, UFOs. All these things go hand in hand, and I thought, who else better to talk to them with then none other than Mr. Paul Hillier. Well, we can cover those subjects and then maybe some of the more critical ones that they later on. Agreed. So, Paul, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Well, I was raised on a farm about 90 miles uh, west of uh, Toronto, where my father pioneered the ginseng business in Canada. I learned a lot of things on the farm, uh, a little entrepreneurship. I went to California after high school to study aeronautics, 
came back and worked in the industry for a while. Spent two hours, two years in the armed forces, one in the air force and one in the army. And went to university. I got married and went to university and decided that when I asked my professors why we had recessions and depressions, that I didn't like their answers because. In effect, they just said, well, we've always had them, so they're going to be part of the system, or they were part of the system. And I I disagreed very strongly then, and uh, that was the driving motive for me to get into politics at such a young age. I graduated from university in May and got elected in uh, June 1949, <clears throat> against all possible odds. The odds at the, the local pub the day I got uh, um, elected were 15 to 1 against me. But somehow we made it, and then uh, about eight years later, I was uh, named by Mr. Samarov, who Louis S. Samarov, who was the prime minister at that time, as uh, the first liberal cabinet minister in the history of the city of Toronto, who had actually been elected in the city of Toronto. There had been a couple who had come in after uh, and been in the Yorks, but none uh, who had... Uh, been part of the Toronto scene and got elected. And then, uh, uh, so uh, I was defeated, of course, in the f- election of 1957, as were most of my colleagues here in the um, in the city. And uh, we were all wiped out in 1958. It was a by-election call that year because the uh, chap living uh, in the riding right next door was watching a a baseball game, a World Series baseball game, and dropped dead from a heart attack. And uh, so my friends and enemies alike asked me to move over and run in Trinity, which I did, and that was my uh, riding for the rest of my parliamentary career, which lasted in total, I think, about 23 and a half years. And by the way, Paul, going back to your adolescence and your upbringing, did your parents raise you in any sort of religious upbringing? My parents were very uh, uh, people of faith, yes. They were staunch Baptists, and um, we used to go to Sunday school or church four times each Sunday. Four times? Uh, oh, my there, goodness. There, there was uh, sort of a two-part uh, system for the minister there, and, and we've attended Villanova Baptist Church in the morning, and then the little Sunday school, and there was Sunday school before that, and then the Sunday school in the uh, Townsend Center, uh, which was closer to where I was raised in the afternoon, and then uh, church at one or the other in the evening because they rotated, they went back and forth uh, every second week. So it was a. They were they were people of faith, and but more important, they 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 practiced their faith. They they were compassionate people. The father treated his employees more as friends than as as employees, and always helped to look after them in many ways. And mother was a person who was very active in the community too. So she she was. Great and looked after me because I wasn't. I was kind of a sickly kid. Oh, okay. But um, I survived it all, and uh, here we are. Amazing. And of course, you are the author of the book 
The Money Mafia, A World in Crisis, and your latest book is Hope Restored. Right. Which is amazing. I really did enjoy that book. And, of course, one of the things you even... Have you read Hope Restored? Yeah, well, not the whole thing, but I did read a good portion of it. And one of the things that you mention in your book immediately right in the description is that humanity is at a tipping point. And, you know, Paul, I believe you are correct. And I've been saying this a lot on my program ever since 9-11. And it really doesn't matter what side in terms of the conspiracy angles. Ever since 9-11, the American Foundation, in my opinion, has been turned upside down. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you're you're quite right to use that uh, term, tipping point. That's where we are. We're, we can either disarm, start disarming, uh, cut defense expenditures uh, drastically, and uh, start using that money, the savings, to uh, install zero-point uh, engines into our cars and trucks and uh, tractors and uh, and airplanes and homes and and keep the planet from total destruction through climate change and to start uh, bringing a little justice into the world so that the uh, the young people uh, all have access to a certain amount of education and uh, and have food to eat and water to drink and a roof over their head and a few clothes to wear and uh, a little opportunity to show what they can do. And uh, so justice has been one of the key words. Uh, I guess you can you can relate that to love if you want to because we're advised to love people and uh, not in the sense of passionate love, but to what the uh, Greeks called agape love, which was to understand where people are coming from and to accept them uh, as they are, and to, to take into account uh, how they were raised and what their culture is and so on. So these are the things that could be done if we uh, change dramatically, which we have to do, because uh, you've seen this, I'm sure you've seen the, the clock, of the, the atomic clock, that shows that we're just so far away from... Uh, from uh, 12 o'clock, as they call it. The doomsday clock. Doomsday clock. You've got it. Oh, yeah. That was a... I believe Lawrence Krauss was talking to me about that off-air. And I should have brought that uh, on-air, but my goodness, I, it totally slipped my mind. But go ahead. Sorry. Well, well we're, we're, we're just... A, 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 I can't remember now a couple of minutes from, from 12 o'clock, which is sort of doomsday. And uh, probably a, a, minute, a minute sooner now... After the United States has renounced the, uh, the atomic weapons uh, uh, treaty with Russia, and it's it's we're going the wrong way because uh, there's been such a, a change in uh, the, the effectiveness of weapons over the years. You know, there was a time when people battled it out with clubs and so on, and then swords and spears, and then musket-loaded uh, guns, and then automatic guns, and then finally the last World War, the Second World War, um, ended with atomic weapons, which are just so disastrous that um, to even have them around is a temptation to use them. And that could happen because there are, there are some psychotic generals in the United States Armed Forces 
who believe that they have now established the kind of defensive mechanisms that they could actually launch a war against Russia and get away with what they call acceptable um, casualties. And this is it's absolute madness. You know, it, they're, they're right off their you-know-what. And I wish, I wish, but they're subject to, to mind control. And that's the problem because they, they, they begin to believe this stuff. They're told it from somebody and they begin to believe it and they think they could get away with it when in fact they can't. So, um, we have to stop doing that and start saving the planet before it's too late. Um, and, uh, it's, it's really up to us because we're writing our own history. And I agree with you on that, Paul, 100%. But I must say this. We could only lead the horse to the water, but it is the horse that must drink that water. And that's the issue we have here in my country, in this great nation. There's so many people that definitely are mind-controlled and brainwashed. I truly believe 60% to... Maybe even 75, maybe even 80% of the population, the mainstream, the masses, they are completely oblivious to what's going on around them, and they only focus on the mainstream narrative, and they really don't have any thoughts or opinions of their own. And that's well, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, because yes, the things that I've learned in the last 13 years since I first went public on the question of UFOs and said that they were real and had the dubious distinction of being the first person of cabinet rank in the, what was then the G8 group of com- countries to say that unequivocally. And I've, I've learned so much since that it's just amazing. And I would say as of today that there are probably not more than one or two percent of people that I bump into who have any, what you would call working knowledge of what's going on in the world. And this is a tragedy because they're just living in a, in a fairyland. I can understand they have to, you know, pay their bills and uh, pay the mortgage and do that sort of thing. But they're going to have to uh, to do a lot more than that uh, if they want to survive as a species. Because if we keep those atomic weapons around, eventually somebody's going to use them. And if they do, it's likely to escalate to the point where the human species is pretty well, if not totally, wiped out. And it doesn't need to happen, but it certainly could happen. And it's happened, I think, once before on the Earth, and it's happened in, on Mars, for example. And they got in, a, in a, uh, an atomic war with a neighboring planet, uh, and uh, so they could no longer live on the surface of the planet but because it was... It had been beautiful like ours, and it became uninhabitable on the surface, and this is what would be likely to uh, to happen here if we were to have this doomsday that we're talking about. But I, I think it might help if we go back and sort of look at a little bit of the history of the, la- of the last 70 years. Right. Because um, to see if we can fill people in a little bit. <clears throat> and... In 1940, even before the uh, Second World War was over, the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States came to the conclusion that Hitler was going to lose and that they should start thinking about an even greater uh, territory for their empire, 
for the future. And, uh, and they started working on it, and they've never turned their backs on it. But they weren't the only ones that were thinking ahead. The, the Nazis, after the um, Americans and the Russians both came in on the side of the Allies, much to their dismay, um, they, they realized that they were going to be defeated. And so sometime before they surrendered, and this was all planned out in advance, um, they started to establish another headquarters in Antarctica. And uh, they, they sent many of their best scientists and engineers down there and all the support uh, staff and so on to establish what uh, we would have called, in other cases uh, during World War II, a government in waiting. And that is their, that is the, uh, the headquarters that they uh, decided would be something that could keep operating while they went underground and, uh, and look for better times to come. Well, this was, this was understood by the Allies, and uh, the United States sent a task force uh, to Antarctica. It was headed by Admiral Byrd, <clears throat> and I forget exactly how many ships there are, but if you want to know, you can Google it and, uh, under Operation High Jump, and it will tell you the number of ships. And uh, Admiral Byrd found to his dismay that instead of being able to take over the place, that he was driven back by a couple of flying saucers, or I don't know exactly how many. And the the question, the only question in my mind is whether they were German saucers, which one of my colleagues believes, or if they were reptilian saucers from the one the one the one species that is often talked about or part of that species, which is talked about by being very aggressive and not really friendly like most of the other species. Nearly all of the species are are benign, but there's a branch of the reptilians which is not. And uh, it could easily have been their uh, flying saucers because they have been living on under the earth, really, uh, the huge area on the west side of the Pacific Ocean for thousands of years, and they'd been around, and uh, they had... Uh, they felt that they kind of owned the place. And so they were working with the Germans during World War II, partly responsible for Hitler's ascendancy. And then uh, probably we're still working with them after the war. Well, then Admiral Byrd was, was dismayed and came back uh, with his tail between his legs, so to speak, and wanted to nuke the... the uh, Antarctican base, but um, something had happened in the meantime. Well, I should say about Operation uh, High Jump that when you Google it, you don't get the the truth. And this is in my book that um, they, they put in a few of the facts in the middle, how many ships were involved and so on. But they don't give the reason for Operation High Jump. By the way, I think and there was uh, 13 ships. 13 ships, eh? Oh, that the total, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't give the and they don't give the result. They don't give the reason for the the whole thing. And this was an indication that by then the United States shadow government, as it was called, the alternative government, which we hear so much about, and was uh, called many things: the military-industrial complex, the military-industrial uh, intelligence complex, and so on. Um, 
was sufficiently in control that they did not admit that this was a problem because probably they were sympathetic to what was going on in Antarctica. And as far as I know, in my second last book, I asked the question of the Americans, um, you know, is the, is the base still there? Of course, no response. And uh, no one has ever answered that question. But in the meantime, I'm sure you are just as aware of this one, there was another operation called Paperclip. And uh, at the end of the World War II, um, the United States Armed Forces decided to uh, recruit a raft of uh, Nazi scientists to come and help them uh, in their in the Cold War against the Russians. And uh, President uh, Truman gave his okay to that on the basis that they not bring in any people who had been active Nazis. But of course, the armed forces paid no attention and they just brought in whoever they wanted. And a lot of them were very active uh, members of the Nazi party. And so they were given uh, new identities, new CVs, new names, and then appointed to important positions, both civil and military, in the United States. And I'm of the opinion that by the time General Eisenhower realized that somebody had moved the the back engineering of the saucer that crashed in Roswell. There were two crashes in Roswell, but the the one saucer was more or less uh, intact, and they they started to back engineer it, and uh, they moved the operation to western the western United States in uh, some of the areas that we know as uh, Area 51 and S4. And uh, and that's where they were working on this. And and uh, General Eisenhower wanted to know what they were doing out there, and they wouldn't tell him. And he was the president of the United States, which tells you something. And so he finally threatened to send in the the uh, army from uh, Colorado, and uh, they let him send in, I think, three or four of his friends of the CIA. And they reported, of course, that uh, they were working on back engineering the uh, the uh, saucer from Roswell. But that is, ever since then, I don't think there has ever been a president of the United States. And and obviously, um, Eisenhower himself was not totally in the loop, who has been totally in the loop as to what's been going on out there. Um, I think they're told, they're given briefings, they're they're told some of the things, but, uh, and I'm I'm told by Grant Cameron, one of the best ufologists that uh, that uh, Obama landed at Nellis Air Force Base, but none of the presidents has ever been allowed to go around and inspect what's happening out there in what are kind of sort of <laughs> laughingly called black operations. They're special projects is their real name, but they're called black ops, as right. you know. And uh, so what has been going on is, is incredible, and there was a a um, scientist who was working out there, Michael Wolf, that was his pseudonym, but uh, he was had top security clearance and had worked in Area S4 and knew exactly what was going on. And he reported uh, in a radio broadcast years and years ago a couple of things. He said that the underground works there were about the size of Rhode Island and getting bigger all the time. Can you imagine? 
And then there are people who say that there's another one uh, a few miles away that is more or less comparable. So these are these are big things, and and for all of these seventy years, um, the uh, the best scientists and many of the best scientists and engineers in the world have been working on <clears throat> on space travel and the development of weapons, which are just so so awful you can't even sort of contemplate them. So you wind up today with a control of the United States, which has been the, the control for years of, of what a lot of people call the cabal. And uh, I don't know, do you want me to just run through what the cabal is? Sure, we could talk about that. And I have a lot to say about that that all ties together, but yes, go ahead. The cabal, uh, which is an amorphous group, and has sort of just come together in, because of common interests over the years. There, it can, comprises the, the Bavarian Illuminati and the members of the Thule Society, but then the next order of business is the, what I call the Three Sisters. They're the Bilderbergers and the uh, Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission. And those three organizations have been working very closely with uh, with the cabal. They're very important. They're, we're right at the top of it, really, in more ways than one. <clears throat> and then, if you break that down a little bit, the the banking cartel is the apex. But most of the bank- bankers are members of the Bilderbergers. <clears throat> and then the oil cartel, which is next to the banking cartel, and uh, it's controlled too pretty well by the by the banking cartel because they're the banks have stocks in oil companies, and they provide them with credit and so on. And uh, the oil companies uh, control the technology that Dr. Wolf um, said existed way back in the 1960s. He said that the United States, in conjunction with one of the um, alien species, had developed both cold fusion and zero-point energy. So for all of these years, instead of using that technology to save the planet and to prevent the kind of storms that we're seeing now in various parts of the world, whether it's off the Florida coast or or whether it's uh, Mexico or on the Pacific Rim, or uh, they're just happening in so many places, and the damage is so great. And this is just this is just the beginning. Because the the forecast, there's so many of them, it's hard to keep up with them. There, there was one put out recently that said we had 12 years to to do something about it. And uh, and my I've, the United States has another forecast, which is that uh, by the end of the century, the the planet won't be worth saving, and consequently, there's no sense trying to do anything about it. This defeatist attitude just uh, bugged me terribly because there is still something that can be done. And, and I'll give you my three-minute uh, proposal, which is in, in at least two of my latest books. Right. And that is to take all – and it's based on my experience in World War II. That in World War II, we took all of the, the automobile manufacturing plants and all the refrigerator manufacturing plants and all the – 
the uh, stove manufacturing plants and converted them into arms factories. And uh, that allowed us to to ultimately win the war, uh, or so we thought. And uh, we have to do the same thing in reverse now. We have to take all of these uh, plants that are are providing uh, the Saudis with weapons and, uh, and the Americans with weapons and uh, ISIS with weapons and and uh, the, the really the military industrial complex and its counterparts in, uh, in Russia and uh, in France and England and convert them into uh, plants to build zero point energy engines or motors, which are very small boxes that can produce all of the electricity you need for a car or or a tractor or an airplane or a ship or a house. And, of course, in the process, you get rid of all those wires that come down when you have an ice storm, and uh, in some parts of the country anyway. And, uh, and you get independence, but you get clean energy, and the, the global warming would stop eventually instead of going up four degrees by the end of the century, which is uh, the, pro- the project uh, – projection of the US study the first one that I mentioned. Yeah. So this this is the this is the cure and this is what has to be done. But you put your finger on it earlier, where is the political will to oh do the things that have to be done? Correct and you I I actually have heard you talk about this the global situation in 2018 you compared it to the global situation in 1939 with one critical exception. Do you recall that? Yes, I do. Oh my! I think you're pretty much right about that assessment. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid so. Yeah, I think you are, my friend. That's my, that's my uh, worst fear, is that the cabal, which has been in charge of the United States, the president, neither the president nor the Congress has, uh, in uh, 2013, Steve Bassett had a show he put on there that I was part of. 40 witnesses with six former parliament uh, congressional people, and not one of them was aware that UFOs were real when we started, not one, and not one of them knew that they had been financing this stuff for decades and that they themselves had been guilty of breaking the law by letting money be spent on on these arms when, uh, when there had been no uh, congressional supervision. So it's deeply ingrained this this uh, Pollyanna approach to life, and uh, the reality is that I am sure, and I, I haven't mentioned this yet, but uh, Alan Dulles, who was uh, he, he was uh, inclined to be supportive of the of the Nazis, and so was his brother John Foster Dulles. And Alan Dulles ultimately became uh, head of the CIA. And when he and his brother were in office, those offices, his brother was uh, Secretary of State, um, they, they brought in thousands more Nazis to reinforce the ones that were already there. And, of course, there were a lot of natural, natural American uh, Nazis uh, in the 1930s, too. So now you have them uh, starting to come out of the woodwork and uh, would you believe there was a, an article, something in one of the 
Canadian papers today that I saw that some uh, Nazis had Canadian Nazis had uh, joined the auxiliary armed forces in order to get training free, and this is happening all over the world. And you have uh, the, these cells that uh, have been lying dormant, uh, beginning to pop up uh, here and there. And what they have in mind, of course, is what they have been calling um, a new world order. When uh, Bush Sr., president, came out with it, it sounded like, you know, here, three cheers, we're going to have a new world order, everything is going to be rosy. Well, that's the way it sounded. But the reality is that they're talking about a world government, which is a fascist government, probably a Nazi government, and of, by, and for them, for their benefit. And they have plans to take over uh, most of the world, and maybe ultimately the whole world. And they've been working towards this for years, and they've done all sorts of things that are really um, sort of beyond the pale. Pretty evil. Yeah. Well, that you're, you're, you're slightly an uh, understatement there, just a little. <laughs> Some of it is so evil, I can't even describe it. Of course, you're, re- of course you're referring. A motorcycle just passed by there. Wow, very loud. Um, I was ref- you were referring to Bush Sr., his speech back on September 11th, 91. Yeah, I think that's the one that where he said, uh, announced this. Interesting great date, new right? World. <laughs> but also in, in, in my latest book, and I, I, I called it Hope Restored because that's conditional. And uh, it, it can be restored, and, but only if millions, and I mean millions of Americans, decided to exercise their voting power to make sure that something was done. And I have listed seven th- things there that, uh, that I think are fundamental. And the first one is to get rid of the CIA Completely, totally. There's no way that it can be reformed. It's just, it is the sort of, I call it evil central. Right. And uh, that's the, the name it should have emblazoned, emblazoned on its front. And they do, they do have done things that, you know, we would accuse the Russians of doing and everyone else of doing. But they have done the same and worse and uh, continue to do it. And I think it was... Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Dr. Uh, um, well, the well-known ufologist, uh, the guy that really got things going. Uh, well, his name as well as my own, but it doesn't come right at the moment. It's okay. And I, I agree uh, with you, though, about the CIA. It would be good to sort of cleanse this sort of a faction that we do have. The CIA has been responsible for... So many bad things, even going back to the uh, drugs for guns trade in Central America and the war on drugs, we kind of already know that it's been a bit of a sham. Well, it's, it, yeah, Stephen Greer was the name I was looking for. Oh, Stephen, Stephen Greer. Greer. Okay. In his later latest book, I think, said on good authority that the the uh, CIA has a squadron of of anti gravity ships that go every night. And well, I shouldn't say every night, early morning, like, you know, two or three o'clock, they fly to the Middle East loaded with guns and drugs that they sell for cash in order to, 
take that cash and push it into the uh, the black operations. And uh, this, I think, is, is just indicative. They are, by all accounts, the biggest, one of the biggest, if not the biggest drug dealer in the United States. I have to agree with you on that one, no doubt. And to further tag to that, it's remarkable that not many people bring up uh, Bill Clinton and his involvement and and Bush's involvement as well. They are pretty much good friends. And as they say, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, Bill definitely had his fun with cocaine, especially out there with his knowledge of what was going on in Mena, Arkansas, something that many people don't really talk about anymore. And, of course, I won't forget that sort of thing. That's an amazing thing when you pardon your brother, Roger. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 I think the irony is that the United States would be having a war on drugs at the same time that one of the most powerful institutions in the United States was the biggest drug runner. And I had actually talked to a retired Air Force officer who had flown uh, F-104 as a guard for a um, huge um, plane load of drugs that was being brought in from Asia. So as far as I'm concerned, you can't redeem it, so you've got to disband it. And I'm, I mentioned that in the, in the Chapter 25 of my book. And then the National Security Oh, by the agency. way, Paul, I'm sorry to yeah. pause you there, but since we were talking about drugs just now, one of the things that is currently going on in your country is the legalization of marijuana for recreational use. Yeah. Um, where exactly do you stand with that? Some people are very excited, obviously, um, but some people definitely are not. How, where do you stand? Well, if I if I were running the show, it wouldn't have happened, but I'm not running the show. Understood. And uh, so uh, there's not much I can do about it. I, I I hope it will not result in vastly in, increased usage because uh, this is dangerous stuff. It affects the brain. It leads to addictions of higher addictions like cocaine and so on. So it is. It's not. It's not without its uh, its risks, which are very real. And so the government, I think, is going to have uh, its work cut out for it to make sure that any positive benefit, if there is some, uh, um, so the kids don't go to jail for having a, a puff, right. um, is not offset by a bad uh, side effects, as they say. And we'll have to wait and see see how it works out. Understood, understood. And before I let you go on, you had brought up uh, Stephen Bassett, and he's been a guest here on the program before. I really like him, and he's someone who told me something very interesting about Bill Clinton, actually, way back when. And he, I, apparently he wanted to be the disclosure president, but they stonewalled him. And he was telling me how Hillary, if she would have been elected, she would have been the UFO disclosure president. And I've heard this echoed by more than one person, but I really don't see that actually happening. How can the government actually disclose something like that when we don't even know all the facts yet of what happened to JFK? I I think uh, (laughs) the first person who briefed me was... uh, 
was the um, Stephen, not yeah, Stephen Greer, for three hours after I first went public, and uh, he um, he is very firm on this business of who knows what, and he briefed. This is something he told me uh, like twelve years ago that he briefed Bill Clinton right at the beginning about this. And Bill said, I will make this information public. Well, then, um, after he became president, or the just as he was becoming president, he had a visit from a couple of people in black suits, as they call it, and uh, he never did it. And this is this is routine, that um, they... they visit the president and say, if you want to finish your term without risking an accident of some kind, uh, you had better, uh, well, to put it bluntly, take your orders from us. And that's the way the system has been working for uh, for decades. Yeah, I think you're and right. I think you're right uh, about that. Um, I, I have to go on and say, I noticed a big difference when Bush left the office. It almost like he regained some life in him, the twinkle in his eye was back. Yeah. You you noticed that too, right? Oh, I, I, don't, I can't ac- actually say uh, that I noticed it, but I've seen enough politicians who, when they leave office, feel liberated because I feel the same way myself. <laughs> right. I'm, what I'm saying to you tonight, uh, I could not possibly have said. Let's say I had become prime minister, which I came very close to being twice. I couldn't then have told the truth the way I've been for the last 12 or 13 years. And I really do admire that about you, the fact that you have been able to speak your mind and tell the truth about all sorts of things. It's very amazing, especially someone of your caliber, sir. Well, the final thing, we're nearly running out of time here, I think, is the Fed has got to go. This is my one of my favorite subjects because they have been using money as a control mechanism. And what I have proposed there is that uh, the Fed be nationalized and uh, right away and uh, that they start producing 34% of the new money every year for the use of the people who own the patent, theoretically. It was one of the biggest mistakes ever made in one of my books, at least I call it the biggest heist in history. And there are two or three other things that I've said uh, have to be done. And that is that the uh, National Security Agency has to be shut down temporarily so that they don't have all of this uh, information as to who is uh, on their side and who isn't and uh, and where they are and all this sort of thing. And the same with the de- Defense Advanced Research Projects, to <clears throat> DARPA. And if anybody really wants to know what's going on in the world, they should read uh, Atlanta Freeland's latest book. Now, I think the uh, title of it is Under an Ionized Sky. If that doesn't depress you, nothing will, but it just (laughs) shows you how important these things are. And two more things. First, three more. The chemtrail harp thing, which is so destructive, they're, they're dropping poison on our they're poisoning the air we breathe and the water we drink and the soil, the soil we grow our crops in day after day after day and have been for years and nobody does anything about it. It has to end PDQ and they have to ground space command because it would be, it would be the, the sword, the thrust 
of a takeover, of a world takeover. They have to ground that until they can sort out who's going to represent Canada in uh, in, uh, in space. And it should be a cooperative uh, effort as all of these things should be in and China and, uh, and Russia should be uh, involved. And we all should know exactly what's going on and we don't. <clears throat> and finally, to... Um, do away with the automatic rifles in deference to the young people who were so brave a year ago, and uh, to get to let them know that they, that their lives count too, and that they're not just uh, children and kids. They're, they're important people. They're the hope of the future. And finally, there has to be a an amnesty and a, and a committee set up between the House and the and the Senate to allow the people who want to talk, to talk without risking their lives and their, and their futures. Because a lot of them would like to say what's going on and come out with this, some of this terrible stuff, but they don't dare do it because the cost would be uh, would be too high. Right. So that's a, a short list of what has to be done. And then I, in my book, I give reasons for those things. But uh, it's it's got it's not going to happen from the top down. It never will because there are too many politicians who are compromised in one way or another. It's got to come from the bottom up, and it means that many many millions of Americans have got to line up and say to their politicians, "We want these things done. We want them done right away. And if we don't, if you don't do it, we're, you will be toast in the next election. It doesn't matter what your party is. It doesn't matter." How long you've served, it doesn't matter. Any of these things, this is important. This could be the difference between life and death. This could be the difference between a world of, with offers of future for the young people and uh, my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and one where we're, in effect, slaves, which to some extent we are now through the monetary system. So it's all there, and uh, I hope that... Uh, some people will get a copy and, uh, you know, and sort of figure out what's going on. And then not only that, but then to do something about it. Amazing. And I know we are coming to a close, but I did want to ask you just one more thing before I let you go. And that's one of the major breaking stories currently going on right now. Uh, Democrats were being targeted. And it's starting to remind me a little bit of the U.K., how politics has become very dangerous, and it really doesn't matter what political side of the spectrum you are on, sending explosive devices to anyone's home is just beyond evil. You put it in the correct way. Yeah. It's beyond evil. Beyond evil, and these people should be very lucky that this sort of package wasn't sent to them by Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. Understood, understood. I, I have to say, Paul, I had a great time talking to you, and I, I definitely hope that we could talk again in the near future. Definitely go ahead and leave us with any final words. The stage is yours, my friend. Well, I, I just want to to say there is hope, but only if millions of people start getting riled up and using their power of of the ballot. And if they don't, well, we just had an election in Toronto where 41% of the people turned out. If if there's that kind of lethargy and if there's that kind of lack of interest in what's going on, um, I'm afraid it's game over. I'm, that's my my would be my prediction. So the hope is 
conditional. It's possible. I'm a, an eternal optimist or I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. And uh, I just hope that people will inform themselves and then say, yes, we want to save our planet and we want to save our species and we're willing to get off our tester fields and do something about it. Amazing. Once again, thank you so much for being a part of the program, Paul. I hope you stay safe out there and take care. You too. And thanks a lot. All right. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Hellier, a great soul. If you are listening to this, keep in mind, you can listen every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, live on the TuneIn Radio app. Of course, I'll be live this Saturday night. Don't forget to be there. And if you enjoy this program and want to help fund the program, go to MichaelDeacon.com. And on the right side end of the screen, hit the little donate button, any amount would be amazing. I'm Michael Deacon. Thank you for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. I could tell that all the mainstream media outlets were giving me like bullshit. Like, you can just see it. It's clear. <laughs> How appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Hogan right now. It's crazy. It's just the simplest shit. You go in there, you see the bartender, you got a nickel there, I can go, you know, you can go I'll bring it by you, I'll bring it by That's what I want. Just for what it's worth, I want to put in my two cents to tell you both that you have one of the most incredibly well-rounded shows. The greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what, motherfuckers? Successfully, at least. Flawless victory.